A little unique on Wednesday night is we are going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we're currently in the Gospel of John and we're in John 6. But before you turn there and we get plugged in, is I want you to get acquainted with some people that are sitting around you. And I know that before worship we did a little meet and greet, but we're all here now after getting our kids checked in. So find three people as fast as you can and introduce himself and ask him how their day is going. So stand up and find three folks. Say hello. John chapter 6, the gospel of John chapter 6, verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy of being together, the joy of uh, being your children, your sons and your daughters, being gathered together as the body of Christ. And as we Look at your words, Jesus, your teaching of that you're the bread of life. We pray that we would really look to you and allow you to be our sustenance, our very existence, to really plug in and abide in you. So would your Holy Spirit just pour out to lead us and guide us in truth. Would you grab our attention in our hearts, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Gospel of John, John focuses in on seven I am statements of Christ. He focuses on I am the bread of life. And tonight in this study, we're going to look at that first I am statement of Jesus where he declares that he is the bread of life. Also, John only records seven miracles and seven signs. And this is the fourth sign that we're going to see in the Gospel of John tonight. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Other than Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, this is the only miracle that we see in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to jump right in, and Lord willing, we're going to get through this entire chapter. So buckle up. In verse 1, you'll notice it's 72 verses. So, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. There is a time gap between chapter 5 and chapter 6, as John doesn't write in a chronological order. So he simply states, after these things, after the man was healed at the pool of Bethesda, he goes back up to the northern part of Israel, to the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Notice the motivation for those that are following Christ. It's a mass, it's a multitude, a large group of people. But the reason that they're following is because of the miracles that they have seen. And we have to ask the question, why am I following Jesus Christ? Is it something that I'm expecting from Christ? Or is it who he is and his nature and the fact that he's God? Verse 3, and Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. 
this year we had the privilege of going over to Israel and a small group here from the church. It was my first time going as a, as a pastor and being able to teach on this section. It's a beautiful section that God has created just geographically. You, the Sea of Galilee is large. You can't see to the other side of it. The sunrises and sunsets are beautiful. And then you'll, they have this hill where they believe to be where Jesus did this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And the hills are, are just magnificent. You've got this beautiful lake, this large sea, and then here's the, the mountains and they just go up. And Jesus went to this place with his disciples. He's, he's coming for a time of solitude away from the masses. In verse 4, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. This is the second time the Passover is mentioned, and it does give us an idea of where we're at in the life of Christ. It's about one year before his crucifixion. But it also sets the stage for this teaching that Jesus is going to give. What's on the mind of the nation of Israel is they would celebrate Passover. Their deliverance out of bondage, they would be thinking of flesh, of blood, of unleavened bread, of lambs, as the lamb would be slain. And Jesus is going to point them ultimately to his blood, his sacrifice, Jesus being the, the, the bread of life. And as we study, especially John, if you don't know the feasts in the background of the feasts, we don't have near the meaning in the Gospels. And so knowing that they were thinking about deliverance, they were thinking about the shedding of the blood of the Lamb is important as Jesus does this miracle and then points to him being the bread of life. In verse 5, then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So Jesus has a heart of compassion for them, even though they're coming out of the wrong motivation. Jesus is concerned about what they're going to eat and knows that this is also going to be an opportunity to teach the multitude. So he turns to Philip. We don't know as much about Philip. Philip doesn't have the limelight like Simon Peter. But here is Philip's big moment where he gets a question asked by Jesus saying, hey, where are we going to buy bread to feed these guys? Are we going to go to Chipotle? Are we going to go to Chick-fil-A? You know, where's the bakery with all the falafels? And what God is doing to Philip is showing him that he doesn't have the resources to meet the need. This is an intentional question from Jesus, not for information, but for education. He already knows what he's going to do. It says that right in the text, in the verse. And God is in the business of showing us how limited our resources are. And when things are going good and maybe we don't realize how weak we really are, we can start to get a little bit puffed up or, or think that, hey, maybe things are going well. But even when things are going well, we don't have the resources compared to the need. Isn't that true? But sometimes God has to remind us. And God's got to remind Philip, here's a need, but you don't have anything close to being able to meet the need. And maybe that's been going on in your life tonight. Maybe it's relationally the Lord's showing you how much you need him. Maybe it's financially. It does come with physical provision. And it's like, oh man, the Lord's showing me how much little resources I have. Maybe it's physically and something's going on physically. And the Lord's showing us, oh, these are my limited resources uh, that I have. We always are being reminded of how, limit, how we're limited and Christ is limitless. So verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. 
Philip's really saying there's no human way possible to feed this multitude. A denarii was about a one day's wage. It's estimated that this was about eight months of salary. I don't know why Philip picked this particular number, but in his mind, he's just saying, even if I had this much money, it wouldn't even be sufficient for people to have bread. Maybe that's how you feel. God's brought you a need. He's made you aware of the need. Maybe some need that we would just ignore, but God's saying, here it is. And we go, I don't have the resources to meet this need. This is impossible. It's frightening. It makes me uncomfortable, but I love this about God, that he calls us to something that's so great, we can't do it in and of ourselves. And that's what we got to see in every aspect of our lives, in our families, with our friends, in our job. The Christian life is something that we can't do on our own. It's something that we have to do through God's strength and God's power. In verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Now, how do you like to be Andrew? So the only way the reader knows who we're talking about is, oh yeah, this is Peter's brother, right? Talk about Peter having the limelight. If you have an older brother or a younger brother, I don't know if it gets any worse than this, right? It's like, Andrew, everybody be scratching their heads. Now, which Andrew is this? And so John just puts in here, well, this is Simon Peter's brother. So when we meet Andrew, we can rub it in a little bit. Oh, you're Simon Peter's brother, right? Verse 9, there is a lad here who's got five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many. What I like about what Andrew does is he takes a stab at it. He tries it, doesn't he? Even though it's only five loaves, barley loaves, and two fish. This is not like a loaf of bread that we would think of, like that would matter, but these are just small little rolls and two fish, but Andrew's willing to bring what he had and put it in the hands of Jesus. And I think a lot of times we sell God short of an opportunity to do the supernatural because we just don't take a stab at it. We don't take our little bit of time, our little bit of resources, our little bit of talent and put it in Christ's hands. It's really not about the resource. It's about who has control of the resources. And it's now in the hands of Jesus Christ. Some say maybe the greatest miracle is that this boy shared his lunch. But I was thinking about that a a little bit more, and I kind of find kids to be more giving than adults. When I really thought about that this afternoon is a lot of times kids would be more apt to share their lunch if they saw somebody without a lunch than adults would. So you could actually see an elementary age boy who's got his lunch, and he's like, sure, you, you can have my lunch. I'm being willing to share my lunch. In verse 10, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in the number about 5,000. So kind of picture uh, Rolling Hills kind of Sound of Music style if you've seen the movie and green grass and much grass is there. And Jesus has them sit down. We know from Mark's gospel that he had them sit in groups of 50 and groups of 100. If you've ever been part of any kind of distributing of, of goods, whether it's food or clothes and there's a large number of people, if there's not organization, it gets really messy, doesn't it? And people get more hurt than helped. And Jesus knows, okay, there's 5,000 people. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to feed them. So he says, we've got to have them sit down in groups of 50 or groups of 100. It does remind us that order is important in our lives. Now, for some of you, 
that doesn't bother you. You're more geared in the order vein of life. For others, it's like, man, I don't even see any value in order. There is some value in order. Everywhere we look around, God has created order, and Jesus does things decently and in order, and that's something that we want to strive for in our lives as well. Verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Church, this is worth writing down, meditating upon, understanding in our hearts, is we're not the source, we're just the distributors. The disciples didn't have to be the source of this miracle. They simply got to distribute what the Lord was doing. And we don't have to come up with the answers. We don't have to meet the needs. Jesus is the one who meets the need. We simply get to share Christ with others. We get to distribute. And when we choose to serve the Lord, we have the best seat. The disciples have the best experience of this miracle because they know what it started with. Two fish, five loaves, Now they're sent on this mission. It's divided out between the 12 of them. They've got a small amount of food. And can you imagine? You probably start off going, here's your crumb. You know, here's your crumb. You know, here's your crumb. And then all of a sudden they realize the food's being multiplied in my hands. And then one of them, probably Peter, goes, I'm going to give away a whole roll and see what happens. There's another roll in his hand. Do you guys remember the revolution that we had with Nick Wojcik about a year ago, last, last November? And, you know, there was a lot of people here. And they, it's hard to know for sure, but they estimate around 5,000. And that gave me a greater appreciation for the magnitude of this miracle. I mean, this is 5,000 men, not including the women and the children, so more than 5,000. And the disciples were distributing food for a long, stinking time. I mean, this is a lot of mouths to feed, and this is only 12 of them, and they're walking around, and they're just giving out more food, and they're giving out more food, and God is multiplying, and he's meeting the needs. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, I already read that verse, right? Verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. This word filled in the Greek, it means to fill to the brim. Reminds me of Project Nehemiah, and you're saying, I don't understand. The dumpsters that we put out in the neighborhoods when we're helping in the neighborhood, those dumpsters get filled to the brim, right? Yes and amen, if you've been out there and seen that. And so this is their stomachs. They've been filled to the brim. This was a Thanksgiving meal for them. Jesus had the disciples get the leftovers. This shows good stewardship on their part. Nothing is wasted of what God has provided and a valuable lesson for the disciples in verse 13. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. How many disciples? How many disciples? How many baskets? 13. No. Only 12. There was 12 baskets. I was just seeing if you were paying attention. And there was 12 disciples. Amazing. This is the power of God, right? No accidents, no coincidences. God's showing I'm able to meet the need. I'm able to know specifically what needs to be provided. Verse 14. Then those men, when they'd seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. 
In Deuteronomy 18, Moses gave a prophecy of a prophet that would come that was like Moses, but greater than Moses, that all should listen to. And the disciples realized this is that prophet. This is God in human flesh that was prophesied about. Verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by, by himself alone. Can you imagine? The bread king. He may never have to go to work again. They're thinking back to Moses when they were in the wilderness and God provided bread from heaven six days a week and then they were to rest upon the Sabbath day. This is the ultimate king to be able to have. He does miracles. He raises people from the dead. He casts out demons. He heals diseases. I mean, could you imagine the lines of people that would be coming to Christ for provision and healing from disease and that we want him to be our king. And Jesus very quickly removes himself from this situation. He wasn't going to allow anyone to make him earthly king. And I think we need to understand this, that Jesus came to set up the kingdom of God here on earth. He came to set up a heavenly kingdom. And that's the most important thing that Christ came to do. He didn't come to be political Jesus. He didn't come to set up governments. He came to bring salvation from sin. And sometimes as Christians, we can lose sight of that, can't we? And we can start to think that Christ's first mission was somehow political or of, of this world. And I think, man, we've been blessed with a great country and be involved politically, be a witness in those, those realms. You know, if people of morals and righteousness and committed to scriptures, if we don't get involved in those realms, there's just more and more things that happen in our culture and our society. But our first mission isn't to pass laws and elect people. What's our first mission? For people to know Jesus Christ, amen? And so Jesus, he, he came to bring the kingdom of God spiritually, that the kingdom of God would be in us and ultimately will experience the reign of Christ quite literally. And verse 16, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. In Matthew 14, we discover that Jesus actually sends the disciples away to cross, to, to go kind of cattywampus. That's a bad term, isn't it? But it's the only one that I can think of. Here's kind of the location of the feeding of the 5,000, and they're going to Capernaum. So they're going to go out on the Sea of Galilee and come over. And this particular crossing wasn't all the way across. It was doing one of these. Are you with me on one of these? Okay. Cattywampus. And... Jesus is sending them to go <laughs> and do that. And it's important as we'll continue that this was the instruction of Christ. And Christ is going to actually send them into a storm. So not only is Jesus the God of miracles and supernatural provision, but he's also the God of the storm. And have you experienced that? Sometimes right after an epic event that's just mind-blowing of seeing God work in our lives, then he says, okay, it's time for a storm. And we have no time for transition. And put yourself in the disciples' shoes. I'm sure they probably even had some of the baskets of provisions still with them. I'm just smiling and blown away. This was amazing what Jesus just did. And now they're in the boat. And then notice what happens next in verse 18. The sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four Miles. The things with storms is sometimes they can come upon us very unexpectedly in life. 
Things are going well, and all of a sudden, get the notice that you've lost your job. Get the news that someone very close to you is terminally ill. I know some of you have gotten the news that your spouse no longer wants to be married to you, and they've decided to, to file divorce papers, and you've been left to deal with it, and you want the marriage to work, but, but here it is. And you've had your spouse flake out on you and those kind of things. The list just goes on and on and on and how quickly the storms can come into our lives. And that's what happens to the disciples. And they rode for about three or four miles. In Matthew 14, it tells us that they rode till the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came to meet them. That's somewhere between three and six in the morning. They rode and they rode and they rode into the wind, against the wind. Why? Because Jesus told them to go that direction. And there's times in our lives where we go, God, I know that you told me to do this. But now there's a storm and I feel so much opposition, but I'm going to keep going and I'm going to be faithful to what you called me to do. Because what God asks us to do is not always easy. And sometimes we think, well, if God's in it, then there's going to be no challenges. But many times there is. And the disciples show great fortitude and strength. And if you're at that moment, or you know God's called you to something. But it's difficult and challenging. Maybe you came into Bible study tonight and in your back of your mind you're thinking, you know, I'm done. I, I'm giving my resignation letter to God. <laughs> Just be reminded, be faithful, and keep going in the direction that God's called you. Don't get weary in doing good. The fruit will come. And these guys show great faithfulness just to continue to row against the wind. Then Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Jesus is walking on the waves that rock their boat, their very existence. And that's what we need to be comforted by tonight. He's above all things. He's the head of all things. All things are underneath Jesus' feet. So what's the storm that's taken you by surprise? It's underneath the feet of Jesus. Well, you can trust in that. They don't recognize Jesus here. They're actually afraid of Jesus. The other Gospels tell us they think it's a ghost. I appreciate this because sometimes in the storm, we have a hard time recognizing the presence of God in our lives. You've ever, ever been there? Where the storm is so bad and so thick, it just sends you off in a crazy direction. You're like, I know God's with me. I think that that's him. I think that that's his presence, but I can't see him clearly. I can't see him accurately in the midst of this storm. In verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. This is what we need in the storm more than anything else is to hear the voice of Jesus, to hear him speak to us, for him to assure us of his presence and say, don't be afraid. And if Christ is with us, then there's no need for fear. A lot of times we would much rather that the storm would diminish than the fear would go away. But Christ wants the fear to depart while the storm is still raging. In verse 21, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. Christ gets in the boat, the storm is calmed, and then they just get teleported to Capernaum. That would be pretty cool. And they're far ahead of Star Trek and all this stuff. I mean, they're just, bam, and they're there. And the experiences of the disciples is amazing. Why does God send us into the storm? The storm does per produce perseverance, fortitude, faithfulness. We're continuing in a direction, even when the wind is blowing in our face. But more than anything else, the storm gives us greater revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The disciples worship Jesus. They understand who Jesus is because God met them in the storm. It would be nice if the lessons could be learned other ways, but there's an aspect of who Jesus is that can't be learned from a book. It can't be learned from a sermon. It has to be learned through the storms of life. Many times we'd say, you know, I would never choose that, but I'm so thankful for it. I would never go back. I don't want to go back to that season that a storm was in. But I learned so much about Christ from that experience. And hindsight is 2020 vision when we're able to look back on the storms of life. But when we're in the midst of the storm, we have to, by faith, acknowledge, God, you're sovereign. You want this storm in my life. And I know eventually this is going to teach me more about who you are. And the lessons we then learn in the storm, we can share with others. We can say, this is how God met me in the storm, and he's faithful even as you go through this trial. In verse 22, on the following day, the next morning, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. So they were watching, seeing where Jesus would go, and they knew that Jesus didn't get in the boat with the disciples when the disciples left. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They're seeking Jesus, but as we'll find, they're seeking him for the wrong motivation. Verse 25, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're trying to figure out how Jesus got to Capernaum. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. They're coming after Jesus for a free lunch. They're coming after Jesus and they're seeking him of what can Jesus do for me? That's a good question for us to stop and think about. You know, am I seeking Jesus because he can make my life better? Am I seeking Jesus because he can help me in these relationships? Am I seeking Jesus and we fill in the blank? Are we seeking Jesus because of who he is? That he's God and that he alone can provide salvation. And Jesus is going to sort out the motivation as we go through this text. It's not a check, it's a text. Verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has sent his seal on him. So much of life is spent just laboring for food. I mean, kids got to have it. I kind of like it too. It's an essential part of life. And it does perish. It's amazing. You go buy a bunch of groceries and you think, oh, these are, these are just going to last forever. And then a week later, you're like, where'd all the food go, you know? I'm a snacker too, so it tends to go quickly. And we, we just labor for these things that perish and it always comes back where we're longing for more. You can have a great meal, especially if it's Chinese and it tastes so good and then be so hungry three or four hours later, right? It just perishes. And so here's what Jesus says. is Not that there's anything wrong with food. I mean, God's created food. It's, it's an essential part of life. But that there's something more. 
There's something more than just laboring to get through from meal to meal that we want to seek the, the food that endures for everlasting life. In verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we, we may work the works of God? So what do we have to do in order to get this food that endures? What works do we need to do? In verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is an important verse to know and to underline. They're asking the question, can we work ourselves into favor of God? And the answer is the command of God, the work that God wants you to do is actually not work at all. It's trust. It's trust in Jesus, specifically his death and resurrection. And by trusting in what Christ has done for us, that becomes the foundation for good works. It's not that good works don't have their place, but we're doing good works out of worship, not out of trying to earn or deserve God's favor. Imagine if some friends invited you over and they just went all out. They fixed a great meal. They knew what your favorites were, had some homemade sauces or the whole deal. And then at the end of the, the meal, you know, you go to them and say, hey, what do I owe you? Like, hey, this is the wrong idea here. I, I just invited you over because you're my friend and I want you to receive it and trust that I'm giving it to you. No, 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 we're not going to be freeloaders. What do we owe you? And then you try to put some value mark on the meal that they've just given to you. Kind of be offensive, right? They've invited you over, they want to bless you. And God's provided his provision for salvation through his son and our job is to receive it through faith. In verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see and believe you? What work will you do? And at this point, if I had dentures, I think they'd just fall out. Because <laughs> this is the same group that had just experienced the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then like, come on, prove it. Do something supernatural. And just like, where you guys been? Like, where, where are you at? But so many times that's the way I am and we are. God does something amazing and we go back to God and say, hey, why don't you prove it that you love me? And God's like, you know, I, I died for you. I rose again, I, I providing for you. And they just totally missed what Christ had just done. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying, hey, Moses, he gave us more than just one meal. He, he gave us manna from heaven every single day. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but the father gives you the true bread from heaven. They thought it came from Moses when it came from God. And we always need to be reminded that it's not man, it's God. It's God who is the one who's provided. It's God who is our savior. And don't put your attention on man. Man's always flawed. Put your attention upon Jesus Christ. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God. So it's an illustration. Bread, it sustains us. We have this daily need for, for bread and for physical food. Our spiritual existence, the bread to meet that need, is the one who came down from heaven to give life to the world, and that's Christ. This goes back to John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God put on human skin to come and die for our sins so that this evening we could have life, that we could experience our souls being satisfied in Jesus. In verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. So it sounds great. 
Verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So this is the first of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This takes us back to Exodus. Moses is being called by God to go back to Egypt. He's nervous. He's feeling inadequate. He stutters severely. And he says, God, I want to know your name. When I go to Pharaoh and say, God wants his people to be let go, I want to know your name that I can describe this to Pharaoh. And what does God say? I am that I am. That's quite a statement. I'm everything. I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. I am that I am. And though it's powerful, it leaves us a little bit of wondering, what's the person behind the great I am, right? And so when Jesus comes and lives out his earthly life, he defines God for us. He is God and he's expressing God in a way that we can understand. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. And here, the great I am is the bread of life. So God is powerful. He's the creator. He's all sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us, but he loves us and desires to feed our souls. And it's amazing balance that we see in God is that he is all powerful, but he is also all loving. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if you come to me, you'll never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And this word never in the Greek, it's emphatic in the Greek. It's emphasized in the Greek. So our souls are created with a hunger. It's created with a thirst. Just like we have a physical hunger and a physical thirst, we have a spiritual hunger and we have a spiritual thirst. And if we come to Jesus in faith, then Jesus promises we're never going to hunger and we're never going to thirst. We're going to be sustained internally in our souls by Jesus Christ. So this provokes the question, am I partaking of Jesus? That's the illustration. That's the allegory that's being given to us. And we know that we partake of the bread of life by faith when we're saved, but we're to never stop eating of the bread of life. We're to never stop partaking from the bread of life. Kind of in a similar vein, a need that keeps happening is you got to go back to fill up at the gas tank. And don't you get a little bit cranky when it's $3.50 a gallon? And you're like, man, this is literally highway robbery, right? And spiritually, we've got a tank, don't we? And we're living our lives and hopefully pouring our lives out for others and serving our families and desiring to be a witness. And we will get empty spiritually if we're not coming back to Christ continually to be filled up, to be sustained. And I look out at a world that's hungry for Jesus Christ and they don't even realize it. Here's the bread of life being offered to them to satisfy and sustain their souls and bring them salvation. And they're trying to find fulfillment in all of the things of this world. For some reason, it seems accentuated with professional athletes. Not all professional athletes, but from many's perspective, they just have it all. They've got the money, they've got the glamour, they've got the life. And you know, if you like sports, you're kind of like, wow, they get to play sports for a living and make all of this money you'd think they'd be the most happy, satisfied people on the planet. And some of them do know Christ and are content in Christ and they eat of the bread of life, but so many of them are just completely empty. 
Are you following Lamar Odom's story? Anybody following that? You know, I look at it not from a sports fan perspective. My heart breaks for the guy. He was a, a number one draft pick in the NBA a few years back, got injured, and he's kind of bounced back and forth between a few teams. Now his marriage is falling apart. His friends think he could possibly be suicidal. Uh, he's, uh, looks like he's a, a dr- addicted to crack cocaine, even though he denies it. And his life's a mess. Hey, I got, let's pray for Lamar Odom. Will we do that? Let's commit to that. Wouldn't that be cool to see him really come to know Christ as his Savior? But I look at that and I go, there's a guy who's hungering for the bread of life and he doesn't even realize it. But it's not just somebody who's addicted to crack cocaine. It's somebody who's got a great life from an American perspective and everything's going well and they're hungering and thirsting for the bread of life. Everybody in every walk of life that doesn't have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ is hungering for him. Remember it before you knew Christ as your savior and you tried to put stuff in there and tried to put stuff in there and it never worked. So may we be reminded as Christians, why would we ever leave the bread of life? No job, no marriage, no kids, no ministry, no vacation is ever gonna fill that void. And I'm convinced once we look to Jesus first and foremost, then we can enjoy all other things. You can really enjoy marriage. You can enjoy your relationship with your kids. You can enjoy your friends because Christ is the one who sustains us. What a great promise from Jesus in verse 35. In verse 36, But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. What a tragedy. The privilege of seeing Christ but not believing. In verse 37, are you guys really hot tonight in the sanctuary? Not at all? So, yes, I'm feeling hot. Chris, do you mind seeing if we can get a little more air conditioning going in the... I do. I was, I'm dressed for snow. Dressed for snow, Billy. We'll see what happens. Verse 37. Does anybody have some lunch? Five loaves? Have you guys ever noticed how our air conditioning works? You should look. There are these tubes of air. And so we try to regulate it so that doesn't happen during service. But yeah, it works good. So there it is. We've got jackets in the back if it's too cold. Do you guys ever have those discussions when you're in your car? Like, is it, is it hot or is it cold? Does the heat need to be on? Or, Yeah, who wins? All right, verse 37. And that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Jesus is going to emphasize several times the work of the Father of bringing us to eternal life. And it's a wonderful picture of God's love for us. We can look back on our lives before Christ and see him drawing us and see us bringing us to a place of seeing our need for Jesus. In verse 38, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Christ's emphasis is always upon laying his life down. Other religions say we have to work our way to ascend to heaven, but Christ descended in order to bring salvation. God humbled himself to save us, to bring us to a place where we could have eternal life. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, 
but should raise it up at the last day. So the Father's will that sent Jesus is all that are given over to Jesus, he's not going to lose them. And he's going to raise them up into everlasting life. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So it's the Father's will that people would believe in Jesus. That's how we experience the bread of life. That's how we come into everlasting life. The Father doesn't want any to perish. Verse 41, Then the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then he says, I came down from heaven? They're understanding that Jesus is claiming to be God. In the Jewish mindset, for him to claim the origin of heaven, that he came down from heaven, he's claiming deity. And so the religious leaders, they get offended and they get upset at this. In verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So here in just a few verses, Jesus has said it several times that no one can come unless the Father draws them and the Father brings them. I was talking this with some friends this week of just seeing this in the lives of even young children where God draws them unto himself. Four-year-old, five-year-old, and they come to their parents and on their own say, I need Jesus, and I want Jesus, and I want Jesus to be in my heart. And you go, wow, where did that come from? We know we've, they've been hearing about Jesus, but there's some hunger inside of them. God's been speaking to them, and the Father was drawing them. And we, I love seeing that inside of our fellowship, of our church families. You can just see the work of God happening in someone's life when the Lord is drawing them. And sometimes they're just almost tripping over themselves saying, I'm ready to to receive Christ. I just need to know how, you know, and the Lord's been doing that work to prepare him and bring him into the kingdom of God. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. So Jesus is saying, look, if you're reading the scriptures, the scriptures are going to point you to Jesus Christ. In verse 46, it says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So here's this amazing balance of God's election and man's responsibility. Throughout this text, we see Jesus telling us that the Father's drawing us. But then he's also telling us whoever believes. So on one side of the equation, we have the responsibility to accept or reject Christ. And we've been given that ability to choose. But also on the other side of the equation, we see the election of God. That God is choosing and God is drawing us through the work of his Father. And many times in our intellect, we go, these both can't be true. But when we approach the scriptures, it's not our job to try to rationalize between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Our job is to stick to what the scriptures say. And I think it does make sense in this level that this is describing a relationship. In a relationship, you see both sides participating for the relationship to come together in beauty. So here's the father drawing. And here's man choosing through faith and believing and coming in salvation. So are you chosen by God? Absolutely. Do you need to choose God? Absolutely. 
How are those two reconciled? I don't know, but they're both right here for us in Scripture. In verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that no one may eat of it and not die. That the one may eat of it and not die. So the manna in the Old Testament, they still died. But if you eat of Christ through faith, you have everlasting life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So Jesus is describing now the work of salvation in greater terms. First, it's the one who's come from heaven. And now he's saying, you've got to partake of my flesh and you've got to partake of my blood, which points to the cross. And this is through faith. When someone believes in Christ's broken body upon the cross, when they believe in his shed blood upon the cross, then they receive salvation. And tonight we're going to take communion. And communion, it represents what Christ has done. So it's not that the cracker becomes the physical body of the Lord or the cup becomes the physical blood of the Lord, as some would believe and some would teach. But it represents and it reminds us of what Christ has done. What Jesus is talking about here of how do you eat of his flesh and how do you drink of his blood, it's faith in the gospel. It's faith in what Christ has done in his work. And as we take communion, it reminds us of that sacrifice. The symbolism points us to that. In verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're thinking gross cannibalism, right? In verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, He'll say that four times in this passage. It's a point of emphasis. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. If you don't accept his broken body and his shed blood upon the cross, there there is no salvation. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed." we can always go back to the cross of Jesus Christ and through faith partake in his great love for us. And that is represented in communion where we can go, Lord, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I've fallen short. But you were broken so that I could be made whole. Your blood was shed so that I could be forgiven. And tonight we're going to have the real privilege of enjoying communion, of remembering what Christ has done. His flesh is food indeed and his blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Christ is wanting relationship. He's wanting intimacy. It's not just, oh, I believe in Christ as my savior. I've got my life insurance. I'm, I'm set. Here I go. But it's walking with Christ. It's knowing him in a greater way. If we get to live a bunch of years here on this earth before God takes us home to heaven, hopefully we're enjoying Christ more. We're understanding what it means to partake in his body more, to partake in his blood more, to understand his love for us and abide in him. Verse 57, and this is the live, as the living father sent me. And I, lo- I like the emphasis of that, the living father, the living bread. And I live because of the father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. The son lives because of the father and we live because of the son. We live because of Jesus. He gives us life. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
You can walk the ruins of this synagogue in uh, Capernaum as they rebuilt over this uh, site. And Christ is right in the hot spot here as the religious leaders would be rejecting his teaching. Verse 60, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? It's not easy to understand. Hey, I like the free lunch part, but I don't understand what Jesus is saying about eat of his body and drink of his blood, and this is just too difficult for me. How many people aren't disciples of Christ or have never received Christ as their Savior just because it's taken too much intellectual effort to think about? It's like, I don't have time to think about this. I don't have time to examine whether Jesus is, is God or not. I'm just trying to make it through this life. Have you heard people say that? You know, that's great that you believe in Jesus, but I'm just trying to make it through this week. And they're, they're saying, you know, this is just too hard to understand. I don't want to put any more effort into thinking about this. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So Christ just asks the question. He says, are you offended? And we don't see Christ trying to pacify them or preaching to appease the audience. He's concerned with the truth of them really entering into the bread of life, of believing that Jesus was broken upon the cross for their salvation. In verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? This is a great question. Would you be offended if you saw me in all my glory and you saw how I've humbled myself to come and bring you salvation? You wouldn't be offended or you wouldn't lack the energy to put in the effort to try to figure this out. This is what's going on in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. We need the spirit of God to understand the word of God. The word of God spoken through the spirit of God. It's inspired by God's spirit. It's God breathed. And so for us to be able to understand it, we need the spirit. So if there isn't that openness to the things of the spirit, we're not going to understand what Christ is saying. As you come and we study the word together and you just study God's word on your own, ask that the Holy Spirit would teach you. Ask that the Holy Spirit would lead you and guide you into truth. Because sometimes when we approach the scriptures, we go, man, I'm just not getting this. It's not making sense. Don't be discouraged. Say, Lord, would you help me? Would you send your spirit to lead and guide? And the Lord many times will open up his word to us in pieces and facets. And this time we understand this and this time we understand that. And the understanding continues to build. But apart from the spirit of God, we don't understand his word. This also is another mission statement of Christ that if it's done in the flesh, it doesn't profit anything. And this is hard. This is difficult because everything apart from Christ is just do it in your own power and your own strength. And from a lot of people's mind, you get results. You go, this is, this is something that really amounted to something. But from God's perspective, it didn't amount to anything. So we want to take the gifts and talents that he's given us, but we want to use it inside of his spirit. Say, God, I realize that if your spirit isn't in this, if your spirit's not in me and leading me, it's not going to profit anything. So I want to follow your spirit. It's not by power or might, but by your spirit. Verse 63 It is the Spirit who gives life. I read that one too, verse 64. You guys just got to keep me honest. Somebody go, 64. (laughs) Put them in, coach, verse 64. 
But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who didn't believe and who would betray him. He knew their hearts. Thank you. That was good. Hey, we're having a fun night tonight. And he said, therefore, I've said to you (laughs) that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. Again, the emphasis of God drawing. Verse 66, from the time, I did it, 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. How sad is this? Many of his disciples. So there were more than 12 disciples up until this point. Jesus goes from the peak of his popularity down to 12 in one sermon, and it was intentional about Jesus. Jesus wasn't impressed with masses. He wasn't trying to just get as many people to get along with all of the activity. He wanted committed followers. And I look at this, and I read this, and I just go, how sad. They followed Jesus. They experienced Jesus. They were with Jesus. But then when it came to the first teaching that was difficult to understand, where he's declaring himself to be God, they went back. And notice those two words, they went back. They went back to their lives before following Jesus Christ, and they walked with him no more. And that's not the place we want to be. Jesus is awesome. He's altogether lovely. And we want to walk with him today, tomorrow, as long as the Lord gives us breath. So we see the response of the other disciples. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Similar to Joshua, Jesus says, if you want to go, you can go. But Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What Peter realizes is only Jesus can save. So even if it's difficult, I'm going to follow Jesus because he's the only one that can bring eternal life. And he also realizes that Jesus is God. And if we're following Christ for other motives, it's going to leave us short. But when we realize he alone has the word of life, there's no other option. I'm following him. When we realize that he's God, I'm following him because he's God and I'm not. It brings a depth in our discipleship. Verse 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So Jesus says, I chose you guys. I knew that you would stick with me, but one of you is not really with me. One of you is the devil. One of you is going to betray me. As we come to communion tonight, what an opportunity for us to understand that through faith, we've entered into the bread of life. When we think of the cross of Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross, we do think of eternal salvation. But Jesus also came to meet our hungry souls. And maybe we've been settling for some other kind of spiritual sustenance, a counterfeit when we can come to the bread of life. And do you have a hungry soul tonight? Come to Jesus and meet with him at the communion table and spend some time. Chance is going to lead us in worship. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, as Chance emphasized in worship, is that Jesus loves you. How many times do we read tonight 
the Father's drawing, that Jesus came and he died and he rose again to offer salvation. And why do we need salvation? Because we're sinners and the penalty for our sin is death. Until we come to that place of saying, Jesus, save me. If you've never made that decision while people are coming to take communion, there's gonna be a ministry team on the right or the left and you come and you let them know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior and acknowledge that pull and that tug that God is doing in your heart. And also if you